The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 1868. Western Anatolia. The Ottoman Empire. The harsh sun beats down on the workers as they dig in the pits. Their tools are rough. Pickaxes, hammers, shovels. These are the early days of serious archaeology, and the work they do here today will be variously lauded and condemned by future generations. Two men stand overseeing them, an Englishman and a German. Both are archaeologists, although of the two, the German is the more classically trained and better equipped. In truth, this partnership would be strained in later years. The German man infamously leverages his greater resources and slightly more serious academic background to cut his partner out of the fame for their discoveries. Frank Calvert, the Englishman, is nervous. He's invested a lot of his own time and his own money into this dig, and since he doesn't have any academic backing, this lack of confidence makes him loathe to speak out against his partner, so he lets him take the lead. Heinrich Schliemann, the German, actually owes this dig to Calvert. He visited him some years ago to enlist his help because he needed permission to conduct the excavation. In reality, though, it seems in fact Schliemann was actually the amateur, since it was Calvert's research and advocating that led them to this site. But Schliemann wouldn't let a silly thing like competence or justice stop him from taking all of the credit that he could. Regardless of their flaws, Schliemann and Calvert are on the cusp of a discovery that will rewrite history. The city they're uncovering was thought for centuries, even millennia, to be nothing more than a myth, a story lost to time and consigned to the pages of fiction. Schliemann's confident. He spent years researching this, and with the help of Calvert, they finally identified the site. Linguistic analysis, oral and written history, physical evidence all points to this spot in western Turkey. What he wouldn't tell you is that at first he was skeptical. He didn't believe Calvert's assertions that this field, that Calvert had bought off a farmer with his own money, would contain a groundbreaking historical discovery. Calvert had actually been surveying and excavating the site long before Schliemann showed up. It was only after a chance meeting that Schliemann and Calvert started comparing notes and collaborating. What they find is several cities layered on top of each other. Now, this is actually quite common in archaeology. Uh, quite often a site for a city is good, and after one city is abandoned or destroyed or rebuilt after a disaster, they'll just build the new city smack dab on top of the old one. But they've found cities dating back to exactly the period they're looking for with the oldest ones. Finally, it's been confirmed that there was, in fact, a real city of Troy. So let's now look at the facts and the fiction of the city of Troy and the Trojan War.
This week we're looking at the city of Troy. Now this mystery is still being solved as we speak, but we do have a fair degree of certainty on it already. Troy was a real city and the Trojan War did actually happen. Now let's take a massive step back and take a huge grain of salt. Did it start because the Greek goddess Hera, Aphrodite and Athena were given a golden apple by Eris, goddess of discord, and Paris of Troy favoured Athena? Uh, no, probably not. I myself don't preclude the existence of the supernatural, I just find it super unlikely that the rounding error would place it into the realm of the impossible. You'd need to actually show me a real ghost in the flesh, or in the ectoplasm, to get me to believe in it. But there was a city in Anatolia, likely with a Greek cultural influence, but more generally of the vaguely Hittite cultural group that fought a long war with several of the nascent Greek city-states, possibly from the Mycenaean era. So to tell this story, we're going to have to go way back, all the way back to before an event called the Bronze Age Collapse, which we're going to talk about a lot in this episode. Now, what I must also point out, by the way, when talking about the Greek city-states of the more classical Greek period is they considered themselves to be the cultural successors, the descendants of the city-states from what we call the Mycenaean era, which we'll explain just now. So, in the days before the classical ancient Greek city-states even became a thing, there was a precursor culture. Well, there were actually two. There was the Minoan culture, centred around the islands of Crete and the Aegean Islands, and the Mycenaeans, centred around the mainland Greek peninsula. Now, the Minoans and the Mycenaeans were effectively Greece in the development stage. Uh, for example, with the religion, the gods and goddesses would end up looking a lot like the ones we know today, with similar names and similar aspects, with some alterations. For example, Dionysius wasn't just the fun-loving god of wine, he was actually an animalistic god of nature and madness. But the general themes are there. The city-states we come to know, Athens, Sparta, Corinth, Thebes, Argos, they'd consider themselves to be the cultural successors to the Mycenaeans. While they definitely did exist at the time, there wasn't a unified idea of a Greek culture, but there was a consciousness of a descent from Mycenaean Greece, and to a lesser extent Minoan Greece, from those whom it was relevant. Now, Mycenae was destroyed in an event called the Bronze Age Collapse. I'd say that Mycenae the city persisted, but the Mycenaean cultural hegemony did end with the Bronze Age Collapse. We can't go into full detail about that because we would be here all day, because that in itself is a mystery worth exploring. Suffice it to say, though, the interconnectedness of a variety of Bronze Age kingdoms and empires led to several bad droughts destroying the economies of the Bronze Age world in the eastern Mediterranean. Egypt went through a dynastic change, the Hittite Empire was basically destroyed, the Minoans disappear into history, and the Mycenaeans experience a regression from more complex cities to simpler ones, a lack of overall cohesion, leading to the emergence of the idea of the polis, the Greek city-state that we would end up knowing. This meant, by the way, that the Greek city-states knew, of course, that Mycenae existed and interacted with them because it was their own history, but that history had to be two things. Firstly, it had to be couched in the cultural world of contemporary Greece. By contemporary, I mean classical era Greece. Today, we know there's a difference between the Holy Roman Empire and modern Germany, but this wasn't so much the fashion back then. The Greeks saw themselves as modern-day Mycenaeans, effectively. Whilst the polis system wasn't as fully formed as it would later be, and we did have cities back then, we do still get the stories as they are. For example, Menelaus, the king of Sparta, and the Athenians helping the Mycenaeans and the Argonauts go after the Trojans. Secondly, it's got to be grounded in the mythic history of Greece. The gods and goddesses of Greece of the classical era, Hera, Athena, Aphrodite, and all the others are involved in the story to an intimate degree because that's what the Greeks believed. If you want to read the Iliad and the Odyssey, feel free. I'm going to go into the real history of what we now know. So, 
The first city of Troy is founded around 3000 BC, well into the early Bronze Age. We call this Troy 1. All of the different Troys, by the way, have names and numbers to identify which iteration of the city we're talking about. Troy 1 was mercantile, located near the Dardanelles and thus poised to control the trade going from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. One thing I quickly like to point out, by the way, is that the ancient world was far more interconnected than we often give it credit for. For example, bronze made in the Middle East often had tin that came from the British Isles. That level of strategic thinking could well have been in play with the founding of Troy. For example, setting the city's location up thinking, we're going to want to be at this great spot between these two trade routes. Now, the culture of early Troy is a little hard to pin down. The archaeology is kind of hard to follow. It seems that it was built in a style that we would recognize as being somewhat classically Greek, with an Acropolis and a Megaron-style palace for its rulers. But I'm not so sure whether that's what the archaeology actually says or whether the findings of Schliemann and Calvert were couched in their expectation of finding a Greekified city that fits the legends, and thus that's just an interpretation of the evidence that they found and in many parts subsequently destroyed. Later rebuildings of Troy suggested that over time its economic prominence eventually declined, houses become smaller and more densely packed, but the walls remain grand, indicating a focus on defensive structures over civic ones. Around the year 1250 BC, Troy is destroyed in an earthquake. Since very little carnage was found of this, this Troy we call Troy VI suggests that the rebuilding was relatively fast. The layout of the city becomes more organised, but with still a central fortified citadel and large outer walls, suggesting a continued need for a focus on defence. Now, Mycenaean pottery was found in Troy VI, which suggests that trade links, or perhaps cultural links, with Mycenaean Greece were still prominent at the time. Now, the debate continues to this day as to whether Troy in general was an Anatolian-aligned city or an Aegean-aligned city. Basically, whether culturally, politically, religiously, the city looked east towards the culture of Anatolia, the Hittite culture, or west towards the Aegean, towards what we would consider a more Greek culture. Whilst the trade did seem significantly long distance, and there was a clear cultural bleed over from the Mycenaeans, the language of Troy was something called Luwian, L-U-W-I-A-N a hieroglyphic language from Anatolia. Much of the architectural style of the gates and the walls suggested Anatolian cultural influence, and the seemingly common burial practice in Troy of cremation was far more Anatolian than Aegean, so what we know of Troy VI is that it seems to be more Eastern culturally than Western, although that in itself again is imposing a sort of modern dichotomy on it, it was more Anatolian than Aegean would be a more accurate description. Troy VI was a thriving and prosperous city. It held between 5,000 and 10,000 people, large for a Bronze Age city, and would have been of great significance and relevance in the region. Its location is key. It's a great middle ground for facilitating both overland and sea-based trade from places as far as Britain, Afghanistan, Ukraine, the Baltic region far to the north, you name it. That being said, most of the evidence for this view of Troy VI is taken from the sea rather than the site itself. Shipwrecks dated to that time period off the coast and their contents suggest that the city was a major trade centre. But since that layer of the excavations wasn't very well documented, we can't be certain. What we do know is that it was an important and thriving metropolis that did participate in regional trade. But whether it was the epicentre of that trade, we can't be sure. And this is where our two characters from earlier come in, Schliemann and Calvert, the archaeologists. They've been widely criticised in the modern day for their brutish and crude archaeological techniques. Indeed, some historians have tongue-in-cheek suggested that Schliemann destroyed Troy far more than the Greeks ever could have. So, as a result, a lot of the layers of Troy's 1 through 7 were damaged and our evidence is incomplete. 
Now we come to the main candidate for Homerian Troy, that is, the Troy that is referenced in the Iliad and the Odyssey and the subject of the Trojan War, Troy 7a. Troy 7a was destroyed by a war, the archaeological evidence denoting that the city was sacked sometime around the year 1184 BC, which led to a long-standing decline of the city. Again, Schliemann causes us more problems, because for the longest time his theory was that Troy 2 was the Troy of Homer, he neglected the other layers. Another archaeologist, Wilhelm Dorpfeld, was the one who identified Troy 7a with Homeric Troy, after attempting to clear up what was called Calvert's A Thousand Year Gap, basically a period from 1800 to 800 BC that Schliemann's archaeological record had a hard time accounting for. Troy 6 and 7a had far more examples of Mycenaean pottery in them, suggesting closer ties to Greece than previous iterations of the city. Troy 6 was Dortfeld's main candidate, which he eventually got Schliemann to concede was a better candidate than Troy 2, since it was found that an earthquake was what destroyed Troy 6 though, and that Troy 7 was destroyed in a war, Troy 7a is now the main candidate for Homerian Troy. But Troy is not fully destroyed by the Greeks, oh no no no. Troy 8 comes along under the reign of the Persian Emperor Xerxes, and by this point Troy is referred to as Ilion, or Ilium in the Greek. It has been for a while actually, I wasn't really sure where the etymology of the word Troy comes from, but Ilion or Ilium tend to be the more classical names for it. It becomes a member of the Delian League of Athens, thus being a participant in both the Greco-Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian War to a lesser extent. Troy 9 was destroyed during the Marian Sulla civil war by the Romans, as Greece and Asia Minor were parts of the Roman Republic at the time. From then on, the city of Ilium becomes a Roman town and later becomes a bishopric of the early Roman church. Around 500 AD, the city becomes depopulated and eventually abandoned, with the population scattered about the area and the city finally disappearing into history. So what happened to Troy? What about the Trojan War? We'll get to that, don't worry. Let's start with what happened to Troy. I'd like to look at that question in the context of the idea that Troy went from being a very real, very important regional trade hub to a minor player in the games of more important cities and larger states, to finally being nothing more than a tiny bishopric and eventually being considered by most to be nothing more than myth. Troy was, for a long time, a real and relevant city. So how did it get to the point that most historians thought it was just a myth? And this isn't like Kuhikuku, where Fawcett's lost city of Zed was a myth that arguably happened to turn out to be true by pure coincidence. This was a genuine, verified, lived-in city with strong connections and links to the outside world that ended up as a mythological item. The Bronze Age collapse could be an explanation for the thorough destruction of the early city of Troy. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail as to what that is now. As I mentioned earlier, it was a massive and quite little understood event that crippled late Bronze Age civilizations like Egypt, the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Mycenaeans, the Minoans, and others. The exact cause is unknown. It's speculated to have been what we call a systemic collapse. Imagine a big house of cards and you pull out one little card from the bottom, it causes the whole thing to collapse. When a society becomes complicated to a certain extent, interconnected both with other societies and with itself, it gets to the point where damage to any one part of the structure will have a knock-on effect to other parts of the structure. A great example of this was ancient Egypt, and one of the reasons why they suffered during the Bronze Age collapse. Ancient Egypt had an army that was very centered around the chariot. The chariot is a great weapon, 
into Bronze Age. But there's problems. One, it's very expensive. It's expensive to build, it's expensive to maintain. You need horse trainers, several horse trainers. You need cartwrights, very skilled laborers and artisans to make them. You need to spend a lot of time training people to ride carriages and to fire from them and attack from them. And then you need to incorporate those tactics into your army. It's expensive, it's a big endeavor. So as Egypt becomes poorer because there are several droughts which cause income to go down, crop levels to go down, they can't afford to maintain the army core of chariots because it's too expensive, so they cut back. So they get raided, so they lose food, so they cut back. It's a cyclical thing that goes on and on and on. That's what you call a structural collapse. And that's, in essence, what we think the Bronze Age collapse was, a big interconnected collapse. The main consequence of it, though, was a Dark Age. For hundreds of years afterwards, the written word regressed, pottery and arts went back to that of a more primitive time, people stopped building great cities and temples and monuments, so maybe Troy was a victim of the economic and societal consequences of the Bronze Age collapse? Troy was just outside of the territorial control of the Hittite Empire, perhaps within its sphere of influence or maybe its cultural sphere, but not within its borders proper. Thus, it would have been spared the immediate consequences of the collapse of the Hittite Empire and its centralized government. However, being wedged between the Hittites and the Mycenaeans and other city-states, the total system collapse of the Bronze Age collapse might explain why the thriving trade city we see in the historical records becomes little more than a small bishopric later. Now, the Bronze Age collapse rather interestingly coincides very well with the dates of the Trojan War, as it's usually understood by historians. To be clear, we're talking about the historical Trojan War, not the Homeric Trojan War. The Bronze Age collapse happened around the year 1200 BC, and the Trojan War is considered to have been anywhere between 1260 and 1180 BC. These time frames also coincide with the burning and destruction of Troy 7a by a hostile army. So the question is, was Troy destroyed by the Mycenaean Greeks, or by the mysterious Sea Peoples? Nah, the Sea Peoples are the real meat of the mystery of the Bronze Age collapse. A group of raiders who came from an unknown land and savaged to the Mediterranean. Historians today are divided as to who they were. They're well attested in the historical sources. The only ones that really avoided the Sea Peoples were Egypt because their military was powerful enough. The Hittites got very badly affected. The Assyrians were slightly too far from the coast to be as badly affected. But most of the other major powers in the area were very badly savaged by the Sea Peoples. This eventually allowed groups like Phoenicia to become a maritime power. Either way, we have these mysterious raiders. They come from some place we don't know. They show up. They burn scores of towns and kingdoms and empires all over the place. They steal what little food exists, and then they leave, never to return. It could be that they destroyed Troy. But let's consider the more historically accepted series of events first. So now we get to what you've all been waiting for, the Trojan War. An important thing to remember again is our context. The Greeks of classical Greece considered the war to be a historical event, but exaggerated by the likes of Homer to fit the demands of poetry and artistic license. But by the year 1850, most historians considered that Troy never existed, and the whole war was made up. But then we get Schliemann and Calvert and their excavations, and all of a sudden, meets back on the menu. The next step is determining which sources to trust. Let's look a little further afield, at the Hittite and Egyptian sources, and we do see some discussion. One letter, the Telegalawa letter sent by a Hittite king to the king of Achaea, a state in ancient Greece, discusses a confederation of states in western Anatolia and mentions a war between Wilusa, Ilium, aka Troy, and the Achaeans. Now, the identification of Wilusa with Troy is not 100%, but it's being increasingly accepted by historians after linguistic analysis. 
What's very interesting is that Walusa, or Troy, was part of a league of states that were not part of the Hittite Empire, referencing the latter, known as the Asuwa Confederation. Historians have theorised that this very well explains why Ajax, Achilles and others in the story campaign in other areas that would have been in part of the Asawa Confederation, so maybe Troy was not the main target of the war. Or maybe it was, but the rest of the confederation also got involved, which explains why the Greeks massively upsold the scale of the conflict, because they weren't just fighting Troy, it was a collection of Greek city-states fighting a collection of Anatolian city-states. As for why it took so long for the Greek heroes to return home after the war, scholars believe that this is because many new states and rulers coming out of the turmoil of the Bronze Age collapse in Mycenaean Greece liked to claim that they were descended from the wandering heroes, so it served the purpose for them. So we've covered the reasons why Troy could have been destroyed. And here we mean the sack of Troy 7a. Which explanation works best? Well, I think the combined approach is good. I, you know, I like a combined approach. The systems collapse resulting from the Bronze Age collapse in general would have been damning to a city whose entire economy was trade-based. Raids by the Sea People may not have directly targeted Troy, but again, international trade would have been severely limited, which would have contributed to civil unrest and decline. Moreover, the fall or decline of the Hittite, Minoan, Mycenaean, and Egyptian empires would have destabilized the region as its previous hegemons would be able to do little to stop the rise of minor powers or those minor powers going to war. To that end, a collective of Greek city-states goes to war with the Asua Confederation. Exactly who took part, we're not sure. The city of Mycenae, for certain, as well as probably some of the Homeric participants, Athens, Sparta, Thebes, Corinth, etc. Worth noting again that they wouldn't have resembled the city-states as we know them from their classical appearances, but they would have still been extant. Whether Troy was the main target, or merely one of many targets within the confederation, I can't say. The archaeology is too scarce, but it's fertile ground to be explored. Either way, the Trojans fought and were defeated by the Greeks. The Greeks then sacked the city, sending it into a long, steady decline over the next thousand years or so, never to recapture its former glory. Worth noting, by the way, when considering the sea people in this equation, that given that the Greeks were comfortable launching a naval-based expedition across the Aegean, it's unlikely that the sea people held any kind of naval supremacy, merely that they used the sea to get around. But with all that sorted, it still leaves the question as to why Troy never recovered. Well, by the time it might have been in a position to recover, there were already other regional powers at play. A city being sacked can leave it devastated. The Romans destroyed Carthage so badly that we're still excavating where we think it was today. Troy wasn't obliterated that badly, but by the time it gets back to its feet, you have the classical Greek city-states emergent, the Persian Empire, Egypt back on the rise, not to even mention the nascent powers of Rome, Carthage, or even Alexander's empire. No longer is there space for a budding but thriving trade port with an independent collection of other cities, you're only going to be a target for larger, more centralised powers which become the norm in the ancient world. From then on, there's just other cities that take the trade that Troy would have taken. Furthermore, the Roman Empire ends up connecting east and west in a way never seen before. You don't need enterprising individuals sailing from the Black Sea to Britain to make bronze. You can run iron, which is far more abundant and makes bronze obsolete, right down the Roman roads from one end of the empire to the other. Thus, the only cities that become trade hubs are the only ones that the empire deems worth it to, pumping funding into them to make them accessible for wealthy Romans who control the trade and therefore dictate which cities should be the trade hubs. So, Troy becomes Ilium again, and nobody cares. Ilium gets recognised as a Christian bishopric, but by that time there's barely anybody living there, and eventually the ruins become just that, 
swallowed by time and the terrain. There are some alternate theories, of course. Some considered another document from the Hittites to the Egyptians, stating that the Sea People were in fact the Trojans, but this is tenuous at best. Some say Homeric Troy wasn't in Asia Minor, but further afield in Scandinavia or somewhere else. But I'm sure you can agree that raises far more questions than it answers, and if that's the case, what do we make of all of the evidence out of historical Troy? Many historical historians, such as Geoffrey of Monmouth and Snorri Sturluson, both famous in their own rights, having written the History of the Kings of Britain and the Prose Edda respectively, attempted to co-opt the story of Troy into their respective stories, both through the character of Aeneas, the supposed ancestor of Rome and a Trojan refugee, and the Greek warriors who fought the Trojans themselves. But these theories are basically a relic from a time where history was largely storytelling, an attempt to write down what was in effect an oral tradition. This meant that there was some fudging needed to bridge the gap between fact and fiction to make these strange, fantastical stories of old fit a semi-believable narrative, considering the beliefs of the day. So what can we learn from the story of the city of Troy? Well, not every story has a message, and I think this is one of the stories that doesn't really have one, but if you're really trying to pass it out of the history, it'd be something like, nothing lasts forever. Troy was, at one point, poised to become a great city of the world, but then setback after setback and the whole sacked by the Greeks thing caused it to miss that golden window of opportunity and forever fade into obscurity, to the point where, for a couple of hundred years, people were convinced that it never even existed and was as fictional as Atlantis or El Dorado. But don't let that message get you down, because perhaps the legacy is as important as the reality. I'm still talking about Troy right now. Hordes of high schoolers read the Iliad and the Odyssey through great pains, and archaeologists to this day continue to uncover more and more about the city. So maybe Troy never got to be one of the great cities of the ancient world, and that's a shame for the Trojans, but in a way they did get their immortality, because here I am talking about them now. Maybe it's not what you do so much as the impact and the way that you do it that it has on people. And you better make sure that impact is a good one so that when people are talking about you hundreds of years down the line, they're saying good things. But that brings us to an end of the story of the city of Troy, at least for now. This has been Demystified by Ashley Styles. This episode was researched, written and recorded by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting help from Wizard Studios. Music by ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.